Hello, and welcome to Anything But Silent from the British Library. I'm Cleo Laskarin. When I was about 11, growing up in Victoria, BC, I started walking to and from school with my friends, and we were gaining this sort of newfound sense of independence. Sometimes, probably about once a week or so, we would overshoot our houses on our way home and walk all the way to the local library. And we would spend hours just pouring the shelves, looking for the perfect thing to read. And I remember just that sheer feeling of excitement at all the different options that I had. Afterwards, we'd head home with our bags heavy, full of things to read, sometimes so excited that we'd dig into our books while we walked. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Libraries as playful spaces, places for learning, discovery, and creativity. To start our adventure, I headed to Plimstock Library in Plymouth to meet our next generation of authors. I love being around books. <laughs> I'm working on a fantasy novel type book. I'm determined to do writing. <laughs> to me, the people in my book are, they're becoming real and I really like that. I can get through a book in a day. What I really want to do is write and illustrate children's books. Oh, young love. <laughs> Fantasy and dystopian. And I'm working on chapter 12 at the moment. I'm applying to do masters. I'm about a third of the way through. I've been doing it for two and a half years. It's so difficult. It's such hard work, but no, I, I'm quite proud of what I've done. People write, you're not going to get many 70-year-olds in the bowling club called Tyler. <laughs> you are not, trust me. Kyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, all those kind of names, Jared. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. So I'm Babs Horton, I'm a writer and playwright. We founded this group six to seven years ago, which caters for young people from all over Plymouth. Uh, we meet fortnightly, and at the moment we're funded by Plymouth City Council Libraries for a long time, I hope. I was born in South Wales and I moved to London, which was quite a traumatic time for me. And I was publican's daughter, so we, we moved a lot, we moved to different places. And the kind of two things I found in every new town was the swimming pool and the library. It's a joy, isn't it, that something is free. I think it's why I do this. We don't charge the young people and we carry on looking for funds every year because it's my kind of belief that it has to be open to everybody. So it has to be open to people with money people on benefits because otherwise we're cutting out a lot of our talent. I learned so much in libraries when I was young. <laughs> That's where you went for your knowledge. With my parents, we had a set of encyclopedias in our house that my dad spent a week's wages on. And then the joy, I think, of being seven and going to the big library and just taking out books. I'd be distraught if, if libraries disappeared and books became something that only people with money could have so yeah great blessing so I decided to write like a series of memoirs about things I've experienced as being blind and so I thought that you know it might be quite an interesting topic to write a book on and I haven't really seen many books about epilepsy so I thought I'd give it a go and they want to catch them and steal their secret powers so I have to like get it into words like my idea on stuff and make it make sense which is the difficult bit, because it's like ill in my head. So I have to get it onto the paper now. <laughs> the 
they just bring something different every week. They're a very diverse group, they're a very different group. You could give them one title and, you know, they would come up with completely unique things, every, every single one of them. So a lot of our time is discussion, talking, and the freedom of all saying, admitting that we're writers. And so I think it kind of gives them a freedom to be themselves and to not be the geeky one, or, or be the geeky one, but not be embarrassed or afraid to be the geeky one. It's fine. I can see right now that you've got 37, yeah. over 37,000 words. Yes. I've been to other writing clubs, but this one's the best one so far. A lot of opportunities through competitions that I found out from being here. But now I write more because I'm doing it at uni. You've got different people with different experiences and you can always ask someone about what you think about their writing. It's really good. Because you all go to your strengths, don't you? But when you become a good writer, you will be able to write anything. I find that I'm at the level now with the older ones where I will share my work with them. I would rely on them to give me feedback now. We've worked a lot on critiquing other people's work in a kind of respectful way, but in a professional way, because you need to know where you're going wrong. So I would get that from them. I talk through some of the work that I do with them, get ideas from them. They're our future aren't they? And I think if I can give something that it took me far too much energy to find out how you find an agent, how publishing works. So for me, it's about opening that up to say the hard work is the writing. And we do, you know, we push them. You think, you write, you draft, you redraft. You have to be professional about your writing. You don't send a sloppy piece of work out there. It's got to be good and it's got to be polished. I want them to be able to do the work, go out there and know how to sell it. Not someone who's published a book yet, but I definitely want to publish a book soon. This book focuses a lot on music, which is something that, you know, I absolutely adore and also oh, young love. <laughs> I mean, one of the characters in the book is heavily based on somebody that I'm very fond of. And as I've been writing it, I haven't really been able to, you know, I was struggling to form the scenes in my head because I hadn't had that. And since then, luckily, I have been lucky enough to, you know, get to know them a bit better and it has helped. So I decided to write like a series of memoirs about things I've experienced as being blind. I just have to finish it because <laughs> it's so interesting that I like forget that I'm supposed to be doing other things as well. I think it gives me a great freedom really in just being thoughtful around people. I don't think we've ever had an argument. We may have had raised eyebrows, but they're very respectful of everybody's presence in the room. Also, you know, they've got some disabilities which have been really, really hard for them. That still catches me in the throat because those girls have to battle really, really hard against getting the, the small amount of money that they get. To, to do what they want to do. So I think in lots of ways, I find it quite humbling and incredibly proud of a generation who haven't got it easy and for the love of writing still want to be there doing it, which I think is great. I shrieked, I cried, I ended up in the water anyway, clinging to one of those coloured pool noodles made of foam as if it was the last remaining lifeboat from the Titanic. Our relationship only got worse from there. A swirling, tumultuous relationship that most recently led to an embarrassing moment with a toddler. It wasn't even my child. 
And so this group happens in a library, and I work at a library, and libraries are great. Is that significant to you in any way? Yeah, I used to go to the library a lot as a child, and now I use my university library. That was one of the main reasons for choosing the university I go to. This gives me a reason to come to the library more often now because I'm so busy. But this is like a time where I'm actually definitely here and definitely happy. And I love being around books. So yeah, yeah, it does help. The first couple of times I came, I had to have my mum come and sit in with me because I was so scared of other people. It's really helped, I think, to meet other people, especially other girls similar to my age who write because I don't know very many people like that. And having us all in one room, it really does help. I normally go once or twice a week to the library to exchange books because I really like reading. I normally read after school and on the bus. So right after you finish writing, you can just pick up a book and read it. So it's really good that it's in a library. If everything goes well for them, I think they will finish novels, they will pitch them, and if luck goes their way, they will be published. I think a lot of them will be published. I hope they never lose the kind of childlike qualities they've got the enthusiasm, the willingness to challenge themselves. They don't just accept things, they will challenge things, they will come back at you. I think their, their biggest thing for me is they're non-judgmental. They really are like that, and I think there's an enormous amount of hope for the future when you see the way they are. All the nonsense that goes on in the world, and yet in here, a very, very different, very diverse group of people just get on. Rainer Maria Rilke once famously wrote in his 1929 book, Letters to a Young Poet, If when you wake up in the morning, you can think of nothing but writing, then you are a writer. And if you don't know the quote from the book itself, maybe you'll remember it from the 90s classic film, Sister Act Two, when Whoopi Goldberg's character lends it to a young Lauren Hill to make her believe in herself as a singer. There is something a bit Whoopi Goldberg about Babs, encouraging these young people to see themselves as writers. Because as long as they're writing, that's exactly what they are. But what if you're not a natural writer? Kids are frequently told to stop messing around, put down the video games, and do their homework. In our next feature, we're exploring whether it's possible to do both. The first world we built was Treasure Island and really, again, I was just I was sort of playing around. I did it over Christmas, in the Christmas holidays, I was just doing it in the evening. And because there was a map at the front of Treasure Island, and I'd done quite a lot of research on Treasure Island, which I really like anyway, I thought, well, we'll try and make an accurate map, an accurate scale map, and see if, if that's possible. I just generated a water world with some bits of land, and I'd, like, built the land, and then put a grid in the air above the island in blocks, in sea lanterns, uh, and then worked grid by grid to make it accurate on the ground. This is Sally Bushell from the Department of English Literature and Creative Writing at Lancaster University. Despite not being an avid gamer, Sally has found herself regularly staying up late, square eyes glued to her computer screen for her latest project dubbed LitCraft. LitCraft, which is supported by the British Library, was born from a wider project mapping fictional worlds from literature.
So in Litcraft itself as a resource, it's not in a way it's not a standalone resource. It's a it's what I would call it like a linked resource. So we always again because I was coming from literature, I'm a prof professor of literature. That was like my starting point. So we start with the text. You're reading the text outside the game. Maybe in school you're reading the whole text or you're reading a section of it from in the library. Then you go in game and you do a task in game, and then you come back out again. That actually is very, very successful. That idea of you start in the text, you, you, you already know about it, you've read about it, you've thought about the character. And then when you go into the game and you're in first person, you sort of are that character. And that's worked very, very effectively beyond my expectation to engage children and make them feel very empathetic then towards the book. And then they want to return to the book and read more of the book because they're kind of more engaged with it. So the game element and the first person element has a lot of empathetic power but when you tie it into the book it really works to sort of re-engage children with reading um, and enjoying reading. But this isn't just fun and games. Keith Stewart, gaming journalist and author, who was recently involved in a panel discussion about games, literature and learning at the British Library, has his own personal story. I think I've always seen the educational possibility of video games. I've always believed that video games have something to tell us about society, especially as we move into an era of digital communication and, and digital interfaces. You know, everything we do now involves the small computer that we take around with us everywhere, which is our smartphones. But it came into very clear focus, I think, when my son Zach was born. And it became very clear to us quite early on that he was uh, possibly on the autism spectrum very limited vocabulary, uh, very nervous in uh, crowded environments. And he almost immediately responded to technology and um, video games because <laughs> they were always around in our house. I'm always playing them and, and there just seemed to be a natural connection for him. And so I think my experiences with Zach have really confirmed my beliefs that video games are a kind of an educational tool. After using a few video games to help Zach learn, Keith introduced him to Minecraft, and that's when things really started to change. But it was like, it, you know, it's that classic light bulb moment. You could almost see a whole new area of his brain switching on when he saw the game. And I think he saw in it immediately, this is like, I, he never had the patience to draw or paint or even build with Lego, but he, he took the controller off me and I can remember it really clearly and he just started to build a house and I'd not told him how to do it. There was just this connection and um, and it was inc it was really incredible to us because he sat there for a while and I went off um, and left him to it for a bit and he chopped down a few trees and he built this little wooden hut and I can really remember I was with my wife and he took us both by the hands and like led us to the console and sat us down and he said, I want to show you my house. And he'd never shown us anything that he'd made before. He'd never shown any kind of pride about something he'd built. Um, it only ever been sort of frustration or not being able to do anything. But he sat us down and he kind of, almost like an estate agent, he walked us through the house he'd built. He had a very limited vocabulary, so he, he relied very heavily on set phrases, very short set phrases. And he only had about sort of 15, 20 of them. But even from those opening moments, 
he was beginning to learn new words because he'd ask me like, what's this, what's this? And he'd point to things on the screen and I'd say, well, that, you know, that's, that's a tree, that's some cobblestone, that is iron ore. And he started learning the words because he wanted to tell us about the things he was building. He needed a vocabulary in order to share his enthusiasm for this game. And it was bizarre because, you know, after a couple of weeks, he'd learn like maybe 50 terms, like ge geological terms. You know, he learned the word obsidian. <laughs> you know, this is going from having a vocabulary of a few words to learning quite complex geological terms. We've had a couple of schools locally who've used the resource as a reading intervention. So there's a big issue with boys underperforming in reading. And lots of kids now coming to year seven, starting secondary school with really low level reading skills. Uh, and so we've done a couple of trials with them, specifically with boys in that category. And we've had, again, really, really good results. So one school had 10 boys uh, sort of that had been identified as having real problems. And they did Litcraft for half a term with some TAs. And two of them came off the list at the end of that. And one of them had been having problems in all his classes and being quite a lot of problem with transition, and he totally turned around as a result of doing Litcraft. What was interesting to me there was it wasn't just... It was the resource itself, but it was also the social aspect of it. And a lot of the, the boys, again, in Year 7, they're transitioning as well to secondary school. So there was a kind of social aspect of them working together and kind of solving it together. Um, and we run a Minecraft day at the university, and... Some of these kids then came to that, and they were really poor readers. And I had them reading a bit of Robinson Crusoe, actual Robinson Crusoe, which is sort of 18th century text, and I was saying, just do the best you can. And they were kind of really stumbling through it. But even there, like, one of the girls who was a poor reader was, like, helping one of the other boys read. She was sort of prompting him to read. And the teacher said she didn't do that. They didn't do that before they did Litcraft. Um, and there was a boy who had a stutter, and it really helped him with his stutter. Just, I know, so it's, again, quite just astonishing how... I mean, that sort of indirect, it's an indirect effect, was the kind of the social effect of doing it, but that, that was really interesting to me, because I wouldn't have predicted that at all. Both Sally and Keith have seen firsthand how much children can benefit from learning through play. But what about us grown-ups? Play is absolutely essential. It's an essential part of our lives. And I think it's really interesting when you see parents interacting with children in playgrounds or when they play video games and you can see that spark of play coming back and sometimes I see a kind of sense of regret that it isn't there. So yeah, I mean the happiest people I know are the people that play board games or play video games or just go outside and kick a football around. You know, all the endorphins that are released when we do those things are like profoundly important. Yeah, never, never stop playing. Always find time to play. Thanks to Keith Stewart, gaming journalist and author of A Boy Made of Blocks, and Professor Sally Bushell from the University of Lancaster. While libraries up and down the country are offering amazing services for children and young people, sometimes, for whatever reason, getting to the library isn't possible. Sometimes the library has to come to you. 
Hey, uh, wee man, how's it going? Hello. Where's your mum? One of the earliest things I can remember reading was The Hobbit, which um, I still have a copy of the book on my bookshelf. It's completely tattered. I don't think you can even read the words anymore because it's so faded and it used to be my dad's. And I remember him saying, I love this book. You should read this. Let's talk about it. And I remember reading it and, you know, I'd read a bit and then I'd go and talk to him about what was happening in the book. And it was a really great way to connect with him. You know, it was his copy and it's now my copy and I guess I'll pass it down to my boys when they grow up, when they're ready for it. Here, recounting memories of reading as a child is Katie Barham. She's the director of a project called the Doorstep Library, a charitable organization that aims to share that same love of reading and sanctuary in books she found all those years ago. From sort of being a child, teenager that devoured books constantly, I didn't really think beyond the fact that I was just a reader and that it was just something that I would do for pleasure. But I spent a good chunk of time working in the city and got to a point where I didn't want to chase the money anymore. I wanted to do something a bit more worthwhile. So I left my job uh, and spotted an opportunity to volunteer on a reading project on an estate that was just down the road from where I was living. And then I met with Agnes, the lady who became our chair of trustees when we set up the charity. I started volunteering on what was then a pilot project. And she had this idea, this vision to set up a charity and she could see that I had some time in my hands. So it kind of went from there, really. The Doorstep Library delivers its services in areas that are statistically struggling with literacy. They might get tip-offs from schools or data from local surveys, which helps inform where they focus their efforts. And as Katie explains, there are a number of reasons why children might be falling behind. There's a gap in educational results, academic results between children from more affluent families in living in more affluent areas compared to those living in disadvantaged areas. And reading for pleasure in the home has been shown as something that really helps children to be able to achieve. Obviously, literacy is such a foundation for everything they're doing. And there are so many families out there where the parents aren't perhaps reading with their children for pleasure. They might go through the process of, you know, reading the books that are sent home from the school that are around decoding the words and prescriptively learning how to read, which from doing it with my own children recently, is actually really painful. It's been proven that parents need to be engaged in reading with their children for pleasure and in supporting them in their education. And for us, it's about working in the home or on the doorstep to ensure that the parents feel equipped and confident to be able to read with their children just for the sheer joy of reading. Importantly, the Doorstep Library's goal is to make reading fun and bring families together through shared experiences. They certainly don't want to add to the burden of the tasks that the kids and parents might deem as homework. I was very much an Enid Blyton reader. I was regularly trying to smuggle a torch to bed so that I could keep reading after the lights had gone out. But we only had one of these enormous kind of garage torches that was not going to go under a pillow easily. <laughs> so uh, I was not always that successful. That was me. Uh, I was squarely part of the Harry Potter generation, <laughs> you know. Uh, I feel that, very old now yeah, that you said that. that was, that was <laughs> Dylan and Louise are two volunteers who work for the Doorstep Library in the Lambeth area of London, going from door to door with a bag full of books and plastic stools in tow. 
Their enthusiasm makes it easy to see why they'd make inspiring reading partners. On a kind of standard session, we'll come into the base, which is usually just a community centre in whatever state we're working in, fill up a bag with the books that you know that your kids, your pack, are likely to enjoy. You know, you meet the same kids every week, so over time you start to build up a kind of knowledge of what they do. And then, yeah, you go out and you see it's usually five or six different families, same ones, as I said, every week. For about 20 minutes, you read to them, or maybe they read to you. You have chats about what kind of books they're interested in, what they like, and that informs the next week um, and that's kind of a standard week but obviously there are some weeks where we will have a little bit of extra time and we'll go and try and find new families and do some door knocking around the estate. As families become more confident as sessions go on, volunteers also help direct participants to other local services and libraries. The doorstep library acting as a gateway to a lifelong love of reading. You know, one of the things in my childhood, I guess, was that reading sort of brought the world to me a little bit. I, I grew up um, in South Wales in a very different kind of community to, to where I'm living now. But reading really brought kind of stories from different places, different times to me and really kind of broadened my perspectives on things, I guess. And that's something that I wanted to, to help bring to others. No way. Oh, thank you. How are we doing, guys? Oh, wow. I think that that kind of excitement, that, that love is definitely, it's at the heart of it, but it does change from kid to kid. Like there, there are some kids where what you really want is to see them actually just engage in the first place. Everybody comes from a different point. There's some kids you'll arrive and they'll already love reading and the problem is that they don't have access to books. Other kids, it's almost a certain amount of shame that some kids feel when they, when they feel like they've not been able to match up to the expectations of their teacher or their class. And I think that it's really, really unproductive emotion. You know, uh, and so I think that when you can inject some fun into it, aye, that's that's where it comes from. She's our superstar reader. She's uh, she's just powering through books week after week. You know, um, I gave her the I gave her the second Harry Potter, and I thought that'll keep her busy for a couple of weeks. You know, um, <laughs> and now you're asking me for the next Harry Potter book. You keep me busy. There's studies out there and research that's shown that in order for a child to be ready to start school at the age of four, they need to have been read a thousand stories already, which is pretty much one a day from the age of, I think, about one. And if you've never been read to as a child yourself, you wouldn't necessarily think to read with your children until it becomes something that's part of school where the school is saying their homework is that you need to read this story with them. I remember once, talking to a young girl about what we were doing. I think she was maybe eight or nine at the time. And she was talking about the benefits that she'd seen from Dorset Library. It's a very articulate young girl. And she actually said to me, the benefit of Dorset Library isn't just in children being able to read and having that access to books. It's also that we as children will remember when we become parents that we were read to and we'll then do it with our children. And for me, that just it sums it up because we want to have these children remembering these really happy moments and then thinking, right, what happened to me as a child? What did I, what do I remember? What did I love as a child? And then them just having the confidence to just pick up that book and read it with their child from a young age. It's then about breaking that cycle of deprivation, that cycle of reading for pleasure not happening in, in certain homes. We've got, um, a young boy who told our volunteers, um, or the mother of a young boy told our volunteers, tomorrow is the magic moment. And then she asked him, what do you mean by the magic moment? And he said, the moment when the book people come to visit us. His game was really 
close. Again, one of the families we're going to see today, one of the boys there in particular, he very much felt that he couldn't read. It wasn't something that was for him. He wasn't going to be able to do it. And he was looking to his siblings and seeing them reading and really wanting to be kind of reading the kind of books they were reading, but sort of wanting to jump ahead and, and getting really demoralised that he couldn't do it as well. And just seeing the difference that even kind of six months that I've been coming along for. And he's so proud of it. It's really lovely. He'll kind of, he'll be reading and he'll, he'll hit a big word and he'll sound it out and, and do it. And then just look at you as if to say, see, see what I read there? <laughs> yeah, that was me. I did that. Me, me, score. The, the Prazer. Pressure, yeah. Was. I don't get to go out on projects very much these days because I'm, tied to the office, trying to do all the bits around, you know, how do we get enough money through the door to keep our staff employed and get the volunteers out and about, um, and how do we expand what we do so that more children can benefit. But one thing that's always stuck in my mind is a young boy, and I think he was probably about eight at the time. Mother was relatively reluctant at first for us to go in and help. There were a number of problems within the home, number of issues. This boy was had ADHD. He had never really sat down for the sessions, never really been that interested and wasn't necessarily, had, had never really taken any interest in the books. And one day I went to visit and all of a sudden he turned around to me and said, can I read this book to you? And I nearly fell off my chair because I didn't even know that whether this boy could read or not. And he sat and his mum, who never really fully engaged, and she, because he'd said, I want to read, she could obviously hear him from the other room reading this book, and she came and stood in the doorway. And he struggled his way through this book. He wasn't the greatest reader. He was clearly behind where he should have been, according to all the sort of, you know, gradings and normal averages of where children should be at certain ages. But I could see him sort of, he'd get to the end of a page or the end of a sentence, and he'd sort of look at me to see whether I was still interested. And, you know couple of encouraging smiles and encouraging words and he managed to get his way through this very short book and at the end of it me and his mum gave him a massive round of applause she had tears in her eyes I had tears in my eyes because it was just that moment of this boy suddenly realizing that it was okay to test out that reading with someone who had been coming to see him for I think I've been seeing him pretty for about a year at that point on a weekly basis I'd never judged no matter how chaotic the household may have been or you know, whatever was going on or whether, you know, the books that they borrowed had come back damaged. There'd never been any judgment and finally he'd realised actually it was okay. It's a moment I think I'll probably remember forever. It was really, really special. You heard the voices of Katie, Dylan and Louise, as well as doorstep library participants in Lambeth. I love this project because when I think back to my own experiences of reading as a child, it just feels so important and so rich, the worlds that you can access through books. It's a brilliant project, and over the next years, their aim is to expand London-wide and perhaps beyond. If you'd like to find out more or how to become a volunteer yourself, go to doorsteplibrary.org.uk. As I think back on the stories that we've covered today, it's clear to see how much the programs that these libraries are offering are affording young people a real sense of confidence. When we visited Plimstock Library, it particularly stood out to me. 
It was so clear to me in visiting with these young people that they had such a sense of respect for each other, both as people and as young creatives. And I think that's something that libraries can really offer, an opportunity for young people to gain confidence, independence, and respect. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. It really does help. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire, and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a PixU production. We'll be back in two weeks with our accompanying mini-series, Joining the Library, when author Anne Fine, creator of the legendary children's character Madame Doubtfire, will be sharing one of her favorite books about family. But until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening. <laughs>